We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. I like every kind of schnitzel sandwich, but to me, I think a schnitzel sandwich in pita with minimal toppings is the way to go. Freshly fried or alternatively cold. I like cold schnitzel sandwiches on a Martin's potato roll with tahina, oh, zaatar, and tomato. Dude. Dude, I like, like that. Like at the beach, it is so Oh, it's so good. So good, yeah. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. Today on the show, we have Mike Solomonov, chef and owner of the restaurants Zahav and Abe Fisher in Philadelphia, and he's the co-author of the new book, Israeli Soul. Later on in the show, we'll be talking to Andrea Sloniker and Dana Frank, the authors of the new book, Wine Food, New Adventures in Drinking and Cooking. But Matt, what was it like catching up with Mike? How is he doing? What's he up to? It's always good to catch up with Mike. I've known him for years. He's one of America's most brilliant chefs, straight up. We talk about his great new book where he travels around Israel, diving into some of the country's major food groups like falafel, hummus, schnitzel, and sabich. Are there any recipes in the book that really kind of blew you away or any that you're really excited to try? Funny you ask, Anna. There is this recipe that when I read it, I was like, this can't be true. It is a five-minute hummus recipe. Now, hummus is a recipe that usually takes several days. You have to soak the chickpeas. You have to shell the chickpeas. You have to boil, and it takes several days. He's like, screw that. Use canned chickpeas. Use tahini. You know, put in the blender. It's five minutes. It's all good. I love it. Is there an Instant Pot involved somewhere in the process? Thank God there are no Instant Pots involved in this recipe. But he does talk about Ashkenazi food in a really unique way, Ashkenazi food being the food of European Jews who immigrated to Israel. It's a really, uh, it's a complicated story that he is able to really whittle down into a small section of the book. Uh, he, he tells the story brilliantly, and it's something that's often overlooked in, in writing about Israel, and he does such a wonderful job. Here's Matt talking to Mike. Mike Solomonov, thanks for joining the Taste Podcast. Appreciate thanks for you. having me, bro. It's so good to see you. I know you've been running around. Um, I wanted to start with a story um, <laughs> that's really funny for our family. We talk about it often is when uh, my father-in-law, my Abba, born in Israel, um, dined at Zahav. Yeah. Uh, and then the next night we were at Abe Fisher and we were doing an event down there for Koreatown. And, and you you'd hosted us and it was a really fun event. And you came up to our table and Abba's there and, and, and you're like, oh, how is Zahav? And he's like, I don't understand why the kids are lining up for vegetables. Right. I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like... My wife was like kind of disappearing under the table at that point. I know, but I was like, dude, I'm Israeli. Like, I, that is, I'm, at least I'm getting an honest answer from him, you know? No, I mean, I think that that is um, the way it goes, and it's really nice to not have anything fluffed, you know? But yeah. it's also cool, I think, when like Israelis come in, whether they like it or whether they don't like it, the fact that they have got this place that they can go to, you know? And he, and by the way, he loved Abe Fisher, and he actually did love it. I think the pomegranate lamb shank was like licked off the bone. So he, like he liked Zahav. He just yeah. went, so is this is the typical or atypical Israeli response to Zahav in Philly? I think that everybody, I mean, food is obviously like a really personal thing. Israelis are highly opinionated, and I don't think that you can compete with like 
the safta saba or like local restaurant factor. Like hummus in Israel, you know, everyone has got their favorite and the best. And like under no circumstances would any of them come here and think that mine would be better than the hummus that they grew up with. But I would argue that I think ours is great. There's just, I'm never, contextually speaking, I'm never going to be able to compete with that, you know? You opened up the hummus conversation. I have to jump right in about hummus. Um, you write colorfully in the book about how hummus in Israel is its own special thing and how the the brands we have here in the States is its own thing as well. Yeah. Um, that's a whole podcast. It's a whole series. But I want to know about your hummus recipe in the book, which is kind of insane and awesome. It's a five-minute hummus recipe um, and it really, you quote, to it takes a medium step forward for mankind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is really funny. Well, we wanted to, for Israeli soul, what we wanted to do is really strip things away. And we went to Israel and shot basically like eight days of, of Israel. And then we came back with all this information and we we're like, what is the book going to be? So, and, and then we decided to shoot it. I was living in this like one bedroom apartment with like a crappy kitchen. And the premise of, like, the food should be that it could be cooked in that kitchen, right? So we cooked all the food in my kitchen and shot all of it on the floor of my apartment. And the idea was that, um, you know, I want, like, I've got two little kids. Like, I want to be able to make this hummus and not not really break a sweat, you know? So we start with a can. Like, all the metrics are done the way that you would actually purchase it, um, you have one food processor to clean, and that literally makes everything. Um, and and that was kind of the way that we wanted to. So to be. this is like a, the longstanding recipe, to my understanding, has been dried chickpeas a day uh, at least, and then you have to cook them for yep. several hours. Cook them, drain them. That's but of take thing. us through your five minute recipe, which it, is pretty amazing. It's basically you start with um, you start with like a like a food processor, and then you add to it uh, raw tahina. Um, but in the portion that you sort of buy it in, you know? Like one, you say one jar, right? It's like a jar, and then it's like water that you um, loosen up the bottom, you know, the bottom of the tahina you need to, like, add water to. That, uh, lemon, garlic, salt, cumin, can of chickpeas. But what you do is you process the tahina first. So Make your sauce. It, exactly. And then you add the chickpeas to that. No baking soda. Nope. None of that. That's... Nope. It's nice, dude. It, no, I, I've yet to try it. Five minutes. You know, you do 10-minute abs, five-minute hummus, you're, like, all good. <laughs> I like that. I like in the photos too. You're using like 365 Whole Foods branded, yeah. which I think is legit. Like you're not trying to say that you need to even source. No, this no. Fat. We want it to be unpretentious and yeah. approachable, and I think that that, you know, in the large sort of scheme of things, has been our approach in general is how we practice hospitality and yeah. food. You're really democratizing this cuisine. I mean, I, I think when you say you have to source X, Y, Z, it's very challenging to cook this food. Nobody wants, like, when you're like, start with an eye of newt. You're like, come on, you know? And especially with something that's already kind of misunderstood. I mean, we want to make it easy and approachable. And when you eat in Israel, it's not like, you know, my grandmother would still prefer to use, like, canola oil over most things. You know, they didn't have tons of stuff. What they had was very good vegetables, a good source of spices, good dairy. But it was really the effort that they sort of put in, you know? I want to talk about, this book is a cookbook, but it's also a travel book. You speak about the nine days you spend in Israel. I love the photos. It's it's really rich in storytelling. But like, let's talk about Israel, the size of New Jersey. And for our listeners who may not have been there, the terroir and the climate is so different for such a small place. Can you explain like north to south what you're going to find? 
Yeah, I mean, I always have to try to answer what Israeli cuisine is, and it's a very difficult thing to do. I mean, what I avoided talking, that question. Well, thank you, even though I guess I'm sort of answering it now. But yeah, it is a very, very small country. It has got um, snow and mountains, and it has got a desert, and it has got the Mediterranean, the Red Sea, the, the, the Sea of Galilee, the Canaret, which is a lake. Uh, it has got uh, sort of rolling grassy hills. It has got fantastic um, dairy production, grain production. I mean, it was the birthplace of, of uh, you know, it was the Mesopotamian Peninsula was where like agriculture started. Um, and it's where modern agriculture has also started, uh, where ancient and modern winemaking has happened. The convergence of the spice and the Silk Road, a um, hundred different uh, cuisines that have either made their way back or cuisines that were sort of developed there. It's got um, Jewish cuisine. It has got Muslim. It has got Christian. <laughs> it has got Armenian. Uh, it has got European, Middle Eastern. Um, you talk about the Ashkenazi influence in the book quite a bit, all the European. Well, we wanted to do that because I feel like the Ashkenazi food gets a really bad rap, and that is something that distinguishes it a lot from just Middle Eastern or what people think is just Middle Eastern. You know, I mean, even delving into Palestinian cuisine and not just uh, from the West Bank or from Jerusalem, but Gaza versus uh, you know versus the the North, um, and and the importance of uh, recognizing those two and recognizing. Uh, Palestinian food in general, which I yeah, think is kind of the next Yeah, that's very clear. You yeah. really are, are looking at all points of view. I have a question about Ashkenazi, and you answer it so colorfully in the book and, and in a very, very limited amount of words, which is hard to do. Why did Ashkenazi food not really stick around, and why did Sephardic cuisine, why was that kind of what ended up lasting? Well, I think that in general, I feel like Ashkenazi food, I mean, from Israel's point of view, European influence in European culture was like not good. That's what, you know, Israeli forefathers didn't want like uh, like the weak European Jew, right? Yep. And even the, the Holocaust was like looked, I mean, it, the way that Holocaust survivors were treated and are treated in Israel today is not great. They wanted, the government wanted this sort of like strong, you know, um, Israeli, whatever that was, you know, and I think that like even though Europeans were the ones that were still fighting war of independence and and uh right after the holocaust i mean it 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 was not beneficial in terms of like propaganda from the government you know um and i think that also there wasn't a lot of access to great food at the time margarine was used I mean, my my dad didn't have butter for the first 10 years. My father-in-law was born in uh, in the early 50s. Um, yeah. But, uh, so there wasn't a lot about, of anything. wasn't right? a lot of anything going and on there. Certainly with the European food and the way that we understand European Jewish food here in the States is like deli or it's like overcooked chicken and blintzes. The mushrooms, right? The different sort of um, fortified uh, wines, the berries, the foraging. Everybody that came over here and everybody that came to Israel was super poor. This is right. So, you know, so turn of the century here in the States, they left with nothing. Turn, um, uh, after World War II, coming to Israel, left with absolutely nothing, including like less six million people and family members. So culinary wasn't a big thing. They all left super poor. And so all these like old culinary traditions were left a little bit behind. And then you add that to the stigma of like a, a weak, like pasty European Jew. Yeah, it doesn't help that. In the that. desert, yeah. And then Sephardic food, or I shouldn't say Sephardic because, I mean, not just Sephardic Spanish, but North African, Mizrahi, everything from the East, all the communities that came back from Yemen, from North Africa, 
all over Arabia, food is just more exotic and more fun and more exciting. Well said, because yeah. when you say f- you've 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 set up the context of why this fun and exciting cuisine has has kind of uh, shaped the identity of, of Israeli cuisine, and mm-hmm. just thank you for saying that. Um, let's talk about why it is so fun and exciting. What are some of the, the... Well, I have to actually go back a little bit and say, so the misconception, though, is that Ashkenazi cooking is not fun and exciting. All right, so we'll go to... Yeah. But, and we highlight this in the book, there's a couple of restaurants, particularly in, in Haifa, and there's still some in Yafo, too, that are off the beaten path, that don't get the press, that aren't buzzy, that aren't like tons of tchina, you know, um, and uh, they're amazing. What and are some of the same... dishes you're having at these... So, I mean, I think, like, all the pickles are freaking awesome. These whole pickled green tomatoes. It's still acid. It's still salinity. It's still spice. It's just not the things that have marketed Israeli food right now. But if you go to, like, Mayin um, Habira, you know, which means, like, spring of beer or whatever, um, in, in Haifa, it is the same. Your table gets covered with tiny little salads, with tiny pickles, with, you know, grilled tongue on top of like giant beans. I mean, like amazing food. It just hasn't gotten the same sort of press, the same buzz. It's not as colorful. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, there's a bit of this exotic nature for the, the, the quote unquote Sephardic cuisine. Of course, it's like forbidden. It's like mystery, you know? <laughs> it's mystery. Yeah. Um, I love that you call it a lot of restaurants in the book. Um, you In the beginning of the book, there's a nice glossary. Um, I, I want to talk about a couple of them that I've been to. Um, yeah. One is um, is Azura Sick. in Jerusalem. Oh. I love that restaurant. Dude, I think it's like – listen, the thing – the beautiful thing about eating in Israel is that there are all the new restaurants that are like awesome that are popping up by like younger chefs. And now chefs in Israel – or embracing Israeli cuisine. It's no longer like go abroad and then come back and make like Italian food. Like they are looking at what they grew up with and recognizing the excitement and the vibrancy, right? So you've got younger chefs like people our age that are making sick food. Um, and then so you've got those new restaurants. And then you've got the new restaurants that I use like in air quotes that have been around for like 100 years that you've just never heard of. And you always sort of have those in tandem. And I think Azura... You know, there are so many sick re- – now in Jerusalem, it is like the guys that opened Machne Yehuda, right? Off the chain. The restaurant cool. Machne Yehuda. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in Machne Yehuda Yeah, Yehuda that's Market. a great restaurant. Yep. Amazing. Yeah. But there's also the restaurant Azura that's been there since the 50s that is like sick, that has got Kurdish, Turkish, super old school Sephardic. I mean Spanish Sephardic. Their sofrito is like I had amazing. fool, I had hummus, I had lamb shank, and then that soup. What is the, the soup? Kube, right? Kube. With the dumplings. Yeah, yeah, so sick. Amazing. Dude, have you had the stuffed eggplant there? Yes, definitely have. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, like, there's nothing that competes with that, right? You can't touch that because that's got, like, the right amount of grandmother and it's got, like, all the, the grandmothers that make up Israeli food. And then you've got it, you know, they're, like, cooking these paraffin burners. I love that. It's, it's like, like an outdoor yeah. – um, you could see it, find it in Korea or Mexico City. It's exactly. It's like a similar vibe Exactly. The and then it's right next to, like, the – where all the – um. The Iraqi old dudes, the old heads, they play sheshbesh, they play uh, backgammon, and they're like yelling at each other the whole time, you know? And it's just amazing. And so, soldiers are there. I love yeah. seeing the soldiers eating their food. and Everybody. It's, everybody eats there. It's sick. I, I want to go back to Jerusalem just to eat it at Azura. I love that yeah. restaurant so much. Yeah. Um, 
your chapters are really cool. Like the way you have a whole chapter for falafel, you have a whole chapter for pita, you have a whole chapter for sabich. Yeah, yeah, totally. Tell me about that dish. So, so sabich is like this amazing. Um, so it's cool because that's actually the most Israeli dish of all, right? Um, less yeah, known, though, I would say less known. Um, and then you go there and you're like, where did the, this came from? Iraq, right? Well, the truth is that it it. There's no sabich sandwich, as far as I know, in Iraq. What there is is tabit, which is the um, the version of like the overnight Sabbath preparation that like the Iraqi Jews made. Because everybody, everybody that's Jewish, the way that they cook is by like basically shutting off equipment on Friday, right? Um, or keeping ovens at the at a constant heat, right? So tabit is like rice, chicken, um, eggplant. And hard-boiled eggs that's, like, cooked sort of in one pot overnight. There was a guy that um, apparently invented the sabich sandwich. And so what he did was uh, the next morning he took his tabit. He took out the eggplants. He took out the hard-boiled eggs. He stuffed them in a pita with trina and amba, which is the Iraqi mango pickle, similar to the Indian uh, mango pickle. And then he put it in a, he put it in a pita, which is what actually – making it portable is what makes it, like, Western, Right. Because um, we got to like get work done and like run around and talk on our cell phones, smoke cigarettes, drive and eat our sandwiches, right? Same thing with falafel. Falafel certainly wasn't invented by Israelis, but stuffing it inside of a pita, marketing it that way, impulse. very Western, right? Yeah. It's like the bagel sandwich here in the States. It, the bagel never, bagel sandwich didn't exist in Poland, right? So, um, so that's, and that, and it was created, I think, in the early 60s. Um, I believe the first Sabih like sandwich place was in. Um, like Ramat Aviv, I think, or Ramat Sharon. I, I don't even some somewhere just outside of Tel Aviv. Let's talk about Amba because I think that's something that's really interesting to me. When I have that sandwich, it's like, what is this brightness? What is this this yeah, kind of like mango pickle? Like it's crazy, right? Mango it's like sweet, sour, fermented, but it's also got fenugreek, so it's got like Indian curry, sweet, you know, and it goes really well with fried things. Yeah, it was brought to Israel, I believe, by the Iraqi Jews. You can look at the proximity. The, the the sort of Baghdadi Jews, like the Iraqi Jews and the Indian Jews had a lot going on. Obviously, spice trade was one of those things. And you can see a lot of influences. Lafa, the bread that is popularized now that we cook at Zahav, that is Iraqi. Very similar in the way that it cooks, the way that it tastes uh, to naan, right? So, um, yeah, man, mango pickle is sick. We make a couple versions of it in Israeli soul, not using mangoes. Like in the spring, we use like strawberries. Yeah, it's which pretty cool. dope. I want to talk about schnitzel. My father-in-law says all Israeli restaurants should be judged by their schnitzel. What? But schnitzel is not something I think about with Israeli cuisine, at least in the modern press. But it's super important to Israeli foodways. I mean, it, you know, again, this goes back to like when there was not a – this was when like Israeli couscous was being made. And that was basically to suffice all of the Sephardic, all the Mizrahi, all of the uh, like sort of Arab Jews that – and there was no rice – so they were like, Ben Gurion was like, we have to make Ben Gurion's rice. We got to make rice, you know, yeah. which so there you go. It was really couscous. And uh, the um, uh, schnitzel, too, same thing. It was like chicken is what is available. And we got to bread this up and like turn this into something, too. And obviously, schnitzel came from like Austria. But um, if you've ever been to Israel, you realize, you know, I mean, schnitzel has transcended. Everything. It's basically. like the slice yeah. in New York. Yeah, You'll find exactly. it in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem or any other type. Well, it's also what my dad, like when my mom, when we grew up in Pittsburgh and when my mom would like not make my lunch and my dad would, it was like buttered schnitzel sandwiches. So sick. What do you like in a schnitzel sandwich? What makes a good schnitzel sandwich for you? Honestly, I mean, I'm like, I like every kind of schnitzel sandwich, yeah, yeah, yeah. but to me, um, 
schnitzel sandwich is one thing. I mean, schnitzel with like rice and trina is like the best way to eat it, like in a gas station. You know, totally. in Israel, like the best. But I think a schnitzel sandwich in pita with minimal toppings is the way to go. Freshly fried or alternatively cold. I like cold schnitzel sandwiches on a Martin's potato roll with tahina, oh, man. zaatar, and tomato. Dude. Dude, I like that. Like at that. the beach, it is sick. Oh, it's so good. So good, yeah. It's kind of like um, the... The the southern fried chicken sandwich with that yeah, roll, but exactly pure Israeli style, dude. It's so good. Oh man, we make it at Federal Donuts sometimes. It's like delicious. Let's talk about your. your you bring up your father, and your father owned Subways, like uh, the yeah. restaurant. He chain. did, yeah, dude. What was that like having your dad own a Subway? You must have been pretty cool. Well, I was not that cool because I first of all he opened one when I was, I guess, in middle school. And I thought that was cool because of the Otis Spunkmeyer cookies. He was right. a jeweler before that. And then I ended up like having to work there at a super young age. So it wasn't that cool. But um, yeah, I mean, it was fun. I, I like the subway model was like pretty interesting. And if you look at the way that they have sort of organized themselves, I find it to be like fascinating now, you know? I bring it up because I want to find talk about the restaurant culture in you and like the entrepreneurial spirit in you because you've got this thing, Goldie. Yeah. That this falafel shop that yeah. I think honestly on the record, that is like the next subway. It could be the next subway. It is it is I, amazing. I appreciate that. I yeah. mean I think that our you know, we make Fresh bread. And that's actually funny that you say that because I think that one of the powers of the, the, the sort of magic of Subway was the fact that they would like bake their bread, yeah. you know? That um, smell, you walk in, right? Exactly. And it was like very vegetable heavy in terms of like fast food, right? So Goldie is vegan, even though we don't like call it a vegan restaurant. We make the hand, we make the pitas and the falafel are like super fresh and it's like tahina, salad. We do like French fries, uh, and then we do um, like these tahina milkshakes. Uh, yeah, these yeah, shakes, man, which are sick, and those are a mixture of almond and like a little bit of soy and uh, and tahina. Okay, let's unpack this a little bit. So you're basically doing these ridiculous these these vegan sandwiches that aren't vegan. You're yep. doing fries, and you're doing this milkshake, which is also vegan. Yeah, but I've been there three times in Philadelphia in your restaurant. There's only one of them, right? So uh, now we actually have three. You have three. Yeah. So you're, you've been growing. Yeah. I'm telling you, there's going to be 3,000 pretty soon. But this milkshake, this tahina milkshake, is the, one of the best things I've ever had, this best desserts I've ever had. And yeah. it's so rich and creamy, but it's vegan. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. But you give the recipe away in your book. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we do. So we what, do. what is the recipe? We give the recipe away for everything in our book. I mean, yeah. pita is um, in our book. I mean, sure. all of it's in our book. So, you know, I think that um, – uh, we teach people how to use ice cubes and a blender to make this tahina milkshake, which are amazing. But you're actually. doing it in like an industrial machine. You've got we have a milkshake machine, milkshake yeah. Machine. Well, it's not even like a secret. We just have the right equipment, you know? And I think that as we all know or should know, it's like not the recipe. It's the attention to detail and consistency every single day that differentiates like a home cook with a restaurant. It's, so it's tahina, almond milk, and sugar. Yeah, and Mix I think there's soy too. in there too. Oh, there's soy, soy milk too? Okay. I believe so. Maybe not. Maybe it's just almond. Um, and it's awesome. And then we do a couple of different toppings and they're great. You yeah. some, where do you see Gold, Goldie going? I mean, I think like you, I think that we should probably open a lot of them. I, I, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> I think so. I I'm, like, just really love that food and I want to eat it all the time. Yeah. I mean, it's really like fresh and delicious and everything is kind of handmade. And uh, 
I don't know, a good falafel is like like hot, fresh falafel is just the, the way to go. I close all of our interviews with a question, what is your dream cookbook? You've made two of them so far. So what, what like what's the next cookbook for you? Uh, what's the or the next book I could say? Mm, it's hard to say. I mean, we were thinking about I don't know, part like there's a couple different ways that we could go probably with I'd like to write an actual book. I think that would be fun and use recipes and cooking as um, sort of like a way to guide or structure the chapters, I think, like almost anecdotally. That would be fun. I don't think I could – I would like – I would have to retire though because I don't – you know, <laughs> like the memoir. Yeah. yeah, I mean like Steve does essentially all the writing and I do a lot of the dictating and, and he does all the editing and we have a Dorothy Kalins who really – is the magic and Don Morris who puts together um, the the design and, and the sort of feel and Mike Persico who shoots it all. So, you know, a book like this is, is a, I mean, it's, I'm a, a very small part of it. I just, I'm like, Hey guys, let's go to Israel, you know, basically. Um, but I don't know, a book, like I would like to just get in a car and just go, I would like to do pick a coast somewhere mm-hmm. could even be in the, in this country and sort of start at the bottom and then, go, you know, start at the top and go to the bottom or vice versa and just pick up food and cook it. Seafood perspective? I think seafood good? would be good, but even foraging. I mean, Oregon is a very inspiring place and I, I could see doing that. I think it would be really nice if it was sort of like endless summer meets something. <laughs> Mike Persico, who shot the book, is uh, taught me how to surf, actually. Um, and uh, I think it would be great to just get in. He's like a El Camino. And just like get in that and drive down a coast and just and just cook food and, and cook it outdoors and, and surf and hike and forage and that kind of thing. I, I think that would be fun. Buy that. Or at My least be, yeah. thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thanks, bro. Here I am talking to Dana Frank and Andrea Sloniker, the authors of Wine Food. So my first question, your book is wine food. Is there really such a thing as wine food or is all food kind of wine food? Interesting question. We actually asked ourselves that a lot while we were writing the book. Um, You know, things that are spicy are often considered like not appropriate for wine and we often turn to beer. But Mm -hmm. um, we found that certain levels of heat go really well with certain types of wine. Um, A little bit of residual sugar in the wine will help with, you know, balancing the heat. And Dana, do you want to talk about, like, some of the wines that go well with spicy food? Yeah, I mean, definitely when we think about things like Riesling and Gewürztraminer, Malvasia, like very aromatic grape varieties that happen to be generally made with a little bit of residual sugar to go with spicy foods are great. Um, But we also found things like, um, we have a whole chapter in the book on brunch, and all paired with different kinds of wines. And so, again, like not something that people often think of beyond a mimosa, but there's all of these great wines that can go with brunch and breakfast foods too. So there's sort of this, the idea was to sort of say all food can go with wine or all types of food can go with wine for sure. We did find a few instances where it just didn't work. I was going to ask, like what is something you absolutely would not eat with wine? A lot of Mexican food I don't think goes well with wine. It's challenging, yeah. yeah. There's a you know something especially like corn tortilla. We really struggled to find wines that like really 
matched the flavors that you find with right. tortillas. Like we tried to do that with a recipe and it just it didn't work like, at okay, all. We're not doing tortillas. Why, <laughs> yeah, why it just didn't work. What is it about tortillas? That's it's just so like tough? it's like you want beer with that food. It just makes so much more sense. Yeah, there's you know? kind of like the the flowery corn yeah. taste kind it's of something plays maybe off with the, the nixtamalization. I don't know. Yeah, the process of actually making yeah. the tortilla from masa. I'm not yeah. sure, but we do have one. We have an agua chile recipe that we pair with vermentino, and that goes amazingly well together. Just the idea of like kind of chilled fresh seafood with you know lime and avocado that goes really well but Mm -hmm. the tortilla thing really threw us off Mm -hmm. for sure Um, and then like a lot of foods that are classically said to not go with wine like tomatoes are a challenge we found some interesting pairings for Mm -hmm. those like we did a tomato salad that goes really well with Gewürztraminer which I think a lot of people are going to be surprised to see Um, and then like artichokes is another thing that classically does not pair with wine and some people say that the only wine that pairs with artichokes is Provencal rosé, but I still don't think that that works. We tried that so hard, and it just yes. there's something you know in the flavor of artichokes, whether it's an enzyme or something, I don't know. But what, it what just would doesn't you work. normally drink with artichokes then, if not wine? Um, I don't know. A <laughs> water, <laughs> water. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that about tomatoes, like specifically yeah. raw tomatoes. Yeah, it's just I think because of their like natural sweetness and acidity, people find it really challenging to put wines with them. Mm. Really, really challenging. And there's so. kind of like a savory undertone too. It's yeah, like that umami sweet, thing. Also, yep. Yeah, exactly. I see a lot of articles these days that are like wine pairings to go with every flavor of life saver or Halloween candy <laughs> or oh, like boy. whatever absurd thing. <laughs> Do you think we've gone too far with wine pairings? <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I do think there's certain things that just don't go with wine. Like I, you know, don't think that chocolate and wine go together. And that has often been like a red wine with chocolate or, you know, with strawberries. And it's like those things don't like each other at all. There's certain wines that go with chocolate, but, um, you know, they're like sweeter wines for the most part, but just like a red, you know, like Cabernet and chocolate do not like each other. Yeah. Like um, so it, it has to have a little residual sugar yeah, in it as well. Like yeah. Banyols. Yes. Is Banyols is the from one the south of France. red wine from the south of France that mm-hmm. I think goes really well with chocolate cake. But it has some sweetness to it. You know, it's very, very ripe. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think we've got, I've, I've had a couple of people reach out and ask if I want to do some wine pairings for like, you know, things made with weed. And it's like, I just think like maybe it's gone a bit over the edge, you know, with mm-hmm. pairing candy and marijuana and things like that yeah <laughs> with wine what's the you know? point is kind of the question yeah, yeah exactly exactly i do i love that your book kind of breaks outside of the model of what people expect to go really well with wine like you think of like a a wine party in the 90s and like serving cheese and, yep. and chocolate uh-huh. as you said so what mm-hmm. were like some of the misconceptions that you were kind of trying to nudge people away from with this book and like what are some of the recipes in the book that just people would never think of to pair well I would say one that they're not necessarily misconceptions but it's exactly what you said is that a lot of the books that we had looked at when we started writing the proposal and thinking about doing this book were things that were just a bit outdated and they made sense in the 90s but now the way people cook the way we shop you know very like thinking very much about farmers markets and cooking with a lot of worldly ingredients and spices it just made sense to do something that felt a lot more modern and more fresh so um you know I don't think any of the old like 
Pinot Noir and salmon and roast chicken and Chardonnay are necessarily misconceptions, but we just wanted to say like, okay, there's all of these other things that you can do too. So, What will be like 20 or 30 years from now, what will be the thing that uh, that generation will be making fun of us for pairing for wine oh my gosh. with wine? What do you think? They'll be like, oh, <laughs> my mom used to have these cocktail parties. Yeah. Um, hmm. I don't know. Hopefully they'll look back and be like, my parents were so cool and they nailed it. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's really where this is going. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I can't really think of anything. I mean, you know, we just think everything right now is just so cool. So it's hard right. to predict what's not going to be cool in 20 exactly. years. But exactly. I don't know. Maybe they'll make fun of our obsession with rosé. Right, or something like that. It's kind of like coming full circle because our parents drank rosé out of a box. <laughs> they called it blush. Right. And now, and now, you know, it went through several couple decades at least of not being cool and now it's like all the rage and everyone's rosé all day and all that and so I think that that's gonna that's already starting to like become a little like okay we get it everyone likes rosé let's let's kind of move on (laughs) but yeah for sure what about the obsession with natural wine that's Mm -hmm. kind of like a huge trend that I'm seeing now Mm -hmm. and a lot of just kind of like a lot of people don't know what natural wine is necessarily, right. and it can mean so many different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very challenging right now. We're at a challenging time um, in wine, thinking specifically about natural wine, because there is no actual definition of what it is. And so it's sort of everybody's own interpretation of what it can be, whether you're a winemaker or you're a wine drinker or a buyer. Um, so... I tend to not think of it as a trend because people have been making wines naturally without any additives for so long that I don't think it's a trend. I think it's just something that now people are really paying attention to. Um, Will it always have as much hype as it does right now? Probably not. It'll probably settle down is my guess. Um, But hopefully people will continue to pay attention to it because like any sort of agriculture, the better we are to, you know, the soils and the earth and, you know, we watch what we're putting in our bodies, the better it is all the way around. So Hopefully, you know, the hype dies down a little bit, but we still pay attention to these kinds of wines. I think it's important. Yeah, it seems to be kind of like a revolution right now. If you think about, like, when everyone started talking about organic food and, like, wanting organic food, natural food, Uh it's like that's kind of, like, finally catching up in the wine world. And so, yeah, there's a lot of talk about it right now. But hopefully, I think the goal would be that it just becomes commonplace that people just want their wine to not have a bunch of additives in it and make it, you know, kind of the old style yeah. Um, non-industrial. I mean, that, there's, that's always going to be there, of course, just like industrial food is always there. But um, hopefully it just kind of gets more into the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. When I think of natural wines, I think of kind of like the slightly effervescent, funky natural wines. Mm-hmm. Do you think we're moving into a direction of having like a little more language to talk about that, mm-hmm. like on a consumer level, just like kind of describing yeah. what people like in that I category. Do. I do. And I think that those kinds of natural wines that are funky and fizzy are, represent like a very tiny scope of the natural wine world. Um, that there are so many tremendous natural wines that are made in a very classic way where, you know, the average person would drink them and be like, oh, this is just a tasty wine. There's nothing funky about it. There's nothing weird going on with it. But it just so happens that that grower works organically or biodynamically and doesn't add anything in the cellar. And they make more of a classic style wine. So I think that just represents a very small portion of the wines that are being made. I think maybe the people making wines like that, too, are the ones that are really screaming 
natural yes, line exactly. and the people who are making it more classically are right. like this is how we've always made it yeah. like they don't really see the need to scream from absolutely this is natural wine absolutely right? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so I have a question because I'm kind of like a wine idiot how like if I'm walking into a wine store what's the best way to kind of like make a decision or learn a little bit more about wine well I think how- your, your first um you know, how you're approaching it is perfect. You walk into a wine shop <laughs> right. versus like a grocery store because you're going to get more personal attention going into a wine shop. And, and in New York State, we there's no wine in grocery stores. Okay. Right. It's only uh, like Chateau Diana. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. So we we do we have to go into a liquor store or a wine store right. okay. to Great. buy it here. So I would say maybe in New York going into like a, you know, place that is really known for wine versus the bodega that, you know, or whatever – has some wine on the shelf, but going into like a you know very specific wine shop, I think is the first first thing. Yeah, and then just kind of um, you know making that your regular spot. Maybe it's in your neighborhood. Just finding your shop and getting to know the shopkeeper. We kind of talk about this in the book about you know exactly what you're asking. Like how do you kind of immerse yourself? So get to know the shopkeeper. That shopkeeper will get to know you and get to know your preferences and start recommending things to you. And you can really start a conversation with them and, you know, dive deeper with the learning about the wine and your own taste. I loved that in your book at the back, um, you have a list of wine stores all across the country. Mm-hmm. Like I'm from Buffalo. You even included a wine store. Yeah, exactly. I was very impressed. Was it hard to do that research? Like how did you wind up gathering those? Luckily, we both travel a lot. And, um, you know, especially within the wine market, we're constantly going to different cities and places. And, you know, it's a community. So you hear about places in, you know, Detroit. Or, you know, Orcas Island, Washington. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's just it's the community of wine is pretty tight. So it, the research wasn't too difficult, but yeah, we we wanted to be really um, conscientious of covering you know all different parts of the country um, because it does seem like wine and natural wine is kind of focused in New York and you know San Francisco and places like that. But you know, it's available all over the place. So we wanted to make sure that. We, we can gave options places. for everyone who, you know, could get their hands on the book. Mm-hmm. Are there uh, parts of the country that kind of aren't known for their wine, but that are doing interesting things with wine right now? Or I would say the Midwest, for sure. Um, you know, I mean, there's not, you know, if there, uh, there, I think there's grapes grown all over. I'm not sure about, you know, what's happening in the Midwest. But I think looking at Chicago and Minneapolis, I think there's some really great things happening with wine, wine shops and wine bars and um, restaurants that focus on natural wine. Um, so I think that's a place that's maybe not on everyone's radar, um, you know, that part of the country. Like we always think of the coasts for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there and then in the south, there's a bunch of great places um, in the Carolinas. I mean, New Orleans is like an amazing city for wine drinking. Um, Nashville. So, you know, some places that we don't think of for wine necessarily, but are doing very cool things. I would imagine with wine more than maybe with liquor or beer, it's hard to have like brand loyalty to certain makers just because so much depends on region and season and there's so much variation across the industry. But do you find yourself kind of like becoming loyal to certain makers or just finding makers that are doing really interesting things. Yeah, absolutely. 
um, with every recipe and wine recommendation in the book, we give a list of like five to eight different producers from you know all over the world, um, people who are consistently making delicious wines um, that we want to drink. And yeah, I think that the the producer is a very important part of choosing your wine. And I think the importer also, and we also have a list in the book of importers to know because if you just turn the bottle around and look at the importer label on the back, that can tell you a lot of information. And there are, you know, 15 to 20 amazing importers that work with natural wines where the wines are available, you know, across the United States, maybe not in every state, but all across the country. And you can sort of rely on those importers. Like if you don't know the wine, but you see their name on the back label, you know that you're in pretty good hands. So I think also, you know, knowing importers and shopping by importers. Great. For sure. And knowing where which stores those importers. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. When you are cooking with wine, is there kind of like a different set of decisions when you're picking out a wine to cook with? <laughs> How much do I want to drink it while I'm cooking? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So cooking with wine, that's a great question. You know, there's the old adage that you should cook with the wine you're going to drink. But if you're going to drink like a really nice bottle of wine, maybe you don't want to pour half of the bottle into your soup pot or whatever it is. So we say that you should cook with a wine that you would be happy to drink. It doesn't necessarily have to be exactly the one that you're going to drink later because it does like, you know, in the cooking process, the wine is transformed. It's not going to have all of the nuances and all the flavors that are going to be in your glass of wine that you're going to drink later. So um, just make sure it's a quality wine that you're cooking with to begin with. Because the flavors do concentrate. And so Mm -hmm. if you start with a really crappy wine, that's just going to concentrate in the dish. So it's like starting with a really like the worst, you know, a terrible cut of meat or, you know, some moldy old tomatoes and throwing them in your pot like you, you know. And making it worse. Yes. And trying. Yes, exactly. Like you still want to start with something that is quality. Yeah. And I, I actually keep bottles of wine that, you know, are open and maybe not completely drunk and keep in my fridge. And that becomes my cooking wine, you know, over the next week or so. That's what I do. That's where all of my leftover half-drunk mm-hmm. bottles yes. from parties go. Exactly. I was going to ask you also, like, what are there other things that you like to do with leftover wine? Or what about, like, a half-drunk bottle of champagne that's kind of flat at the end of mm. a... That's unfortunate. Don't yeah. let that happen. <laughs> okay. That's the first rule. Drink it. Um, yeah. Champagne is difficult because the bubbles go away. Right. And no, we, I mean, you know, I know make vinegar. We're not that crafty. <laughs> I've never made vinegar before, but I do know people that do that, that save their old, you know, wine and make vinegar out of it, but yeah. cook with it. Cook with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what sorts of things would you cook with champagne? You oh, could, um, like make an amazing, like braised chicken dish. Ooh. With oh, that's a like good idea. Cream, mm-hmm. champagne chicken. That sounds kind of awesome. I love that. Mm-hmm. Sounds great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is that champagne, you know, it spends before it gets bubbles the second time around, you know, for the second fermentation, it starts as a still wine. And so it's really interesting to taste champagne flat, even though in your mind you're like, this doesn't taste right because it doesn't have bubbles. But if you didn't know any different, that, you know, is that wine started its life as a still wine at some point. So. Um, I think, you know, you, you could if it's totally flat, you could substitute it in for any number of white wines that you would use in a dish, actually. I never thought about that, like just being kind of totally tricked by the absence yes. of bubbles. And then thinking, oh, I can't drink this wine. But actually, 
if you didn't know it was bubbly, you would probably drink it. Yeah. If you didn't know it was bubbly to start, you would probably drink it. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I noticed in your introduction, you talk a little bit about just specific moments of pairing that mm-hmm. kind of inspired you to write the book, mm-hmm. like eating a delicious olive oil drenched fish on an island in Croatia, mm-hmm. for instance. Do you think there are wine pairings that are kind of that depend on the situation as well as the food? Like, do you ever find yourself pairing certain wines with like certain occasions? Thank you for asking that because that's actually yes. the premise of the entire book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, we set out to write a book that wasn't just about pairing the wine and the food, but considering the third component, which is the moment and the season and the time of day and who you're with. And so that is absolutely perhaps the most important part of it you know like sunny july afternoon on your patio what kind of wines make sense what kind of food makes sense you know you're not going to want to drink a really heavy barolo with a big bowl of pasta you know you want to have something like cold fried chicken with chocolate that kind of thing so um absolutely that's very important and that's really what we wanted to kind of bring to the the forefront with the pairing idea Mm mm-hmm what should I drink this weekend? Like a beautiful fall weekend in New York? Mm, is it going to be humid? <laughs> oh, probably. <laughs> um, so we have um, a forbidden rice bowl in the book that's done with salmon and then this lovely um, cucumber salad. And we pair it with Gruner Veltliner from Austria. So I feel like for this time of year, for the weather in New York, that would be great because I don't know. For me personally, I wouldn't be ready for like hot, cozy food this weekend, even though it's fall. And I feel like Gruner Veltliner has, you know, it has some acidity and some brightness to it, but it also can have really wonderful body and texture. And so it's kind of a nice wine for this time of year. Um, And it, you know, allows you to like cook something and play with a recipe in the book, but not have like hot food coming out of the oven. Thank you so much. I've learned so much about wine, guys. Thanks for coming in. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis, studio recordings by Pat Stango, theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.